0: Hey
1: everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. On April 4th, 1968, John Lewis was with presidential candidate Bobby Kennedy as he campaigned in Indianapolis. It was there that he learned that his friend and mentor, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had been assassinated. In this very special episode of Cape Up, Lewis tells me why he's going back there for the first time since that fateful day and why he's avoided returning at all.
0: This will be my very, very first time going back to Indianapolis. I have not gone back to that spot since. Um, it's just been too hard, too difficult.
1: Listen to the Georgia congressman and civil rights icon talk about how he met King, what Rosa Parks was like, where he found the strength to exhibit grace in the face of violence and death, and why the Parkland generation gives him hope right now. Congressman Lewis, thank you very much for being on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. So,
1: April 4th, 1968. Where were you?
0: On April 4th, 1968, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, campaigning for Robert Kennedy happened to organize a rally where he was supposed to speak.
1: And as people may or may not know, at that rally, that night, Bobby Kennedy informed the people who were there, I think, around his car about the news, about what happened to Dr. Martin Luther King. Were you with him in that moment when he delivered what is now considered one of the greatest political speeches in American history?
0: That moment I was in the audience in the crowd a short distance from Bobby Kennedy. I had heard earlier that Dr. King had been shot but that's the only thing I heard. I kept on organizing people, bringing people together and it was Bobby Kennedy who announced to the crowd that Dr. King had been assassinated and it was such an unbelievable feeling. Um, I cried and many, many of the individuals in the audience uh, cried.
1: One of the memorable things about that video is when he delivers the news about Dr. King's death, just the impromptu shrieking of of the gathered there and, and the crying. Is that how you remember it?
0: I remember so well. It was just, people were so stunned. They like froze in place, and you just heard people crying and sobbing, and I cried. I just felt like uh, something had died in all of us when we heard that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. But I said to myself, "Will we still have Bobby. And a short time later, uh, he was gone.
1: You've said a couple of times now that when you heard the news out of Bobby Kennedy's mouth that you cried. Um, you cried. Everyone around you cried. The nation cried, quite frankly. But for you, your tears weren't. Abstract. I mean, Dr. King was not a distant figure to you. He was a a, a friend and a mentor.
0: Dr. King was like a, a big brother to me. Uh, I first heard of Martin Luther King Jr. when I was 15 years old, growing up in rural Alabama uh, in 1955. I was in the 10th grade. I grew up only 50 miles from Montgomery. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks inspired me. If it hadn't been for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, I don't know what would have happened to me. Uh, I saw the signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I asked my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my teachers, and they always said that's the way it is. Don't get in trouble. Don't get in the way. But Dr. King inspired me to get in trouble, what I call good trouble, necessary trouble, and I've been getting in trouble ever since. This man became my um, my inspiration, my hope. I wrote him a letter. It hadn't been for Dr. King, I tell you, so many of us would have been lost. Um, by the evil of segregation and racial discrimination. He gave us hope.
1: What was it about that letter that you wrote to Dr. King, do you think, that persuaded him or moved him to send this kid he'd never met, didn't know, a round-trip bus ticket to come see him?
0: Well, it was a very simple letter. My handwriting is not That good, it was not that good then. (laughs) It's not that good now. But I think he saw something in maybe my handwriting or something within the letters, the words, the text of the letter. I said, Dr. King, I need your help. I want to attend this little college, Troy State College. It's only 10 miles from my home. I submitted my application, my high school transcript. Can you help me? He wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket, and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet
1: with him. And so you, so you get on the Greyhound, you get on that bus. Were you in a, were you in a suit? Were you in a? Did you get all dressed up to meet meet Dr. King? Well,
0: to to meet Martin Luther King Jr., I, I, I wanted to look what. Guys back then I guess referred to as fresh, Mm -hmm. clean, or sharp. And uh, I I think I looked pretty good. Uh, (laughs) Had a white shirt on and a tie, and a very cheap, inexpensive suit. And when I arrived in Montgomery, he had sent a young lawyer by the name of Fred Gray. who had been a lawyer for Rosa Parks, Dr. King, and the Montgomery movement, and later became our lawyer during the Freedom Rise and during the march from Selma to Montgomery. Met me at the Greyhound bus station and drove me to the First Baptist Church, passed by the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, a colleague of Dr. King. And I saw these two young ministers standing behind a desk. And Dr. King said, well, you the boy from Troy, Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name, but he still called me the boy from Troy.
1: (laughs) Why would you give your whole name? I've always wanted to ask you that when I hear you tell this story. I wanted to be sure
0: that I was the right person that wrote the letter, that I'm the
1: same person.
0: I there was other people named John and maybe Robert, but I was John Robert Lewis.
1: And so you see Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King, and Reverend Abernathy standing in front of you, who are known figures to you. You're there meeting giants. They were giants already to you. Were you nervous, scared, pinching yourself?
0: To be candid, I I, I was scared. I was nervous. To be standing in the presence of these two unbelievable leaders of this movement that I read about, heard them on old radio, and I knew that I was like a small, frightened child, in the midst of greatness. These two individuals, along with Rosa Parks, have become people that I admired because I felt deeply within that they were going to help liberate the South and create a movement where there was no going back.
1: Rosa Parks, you've mentioned her several times now your first response was that Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, if it weren't for them, I don't know. I don't know what would have become of me. What was she like?
0: Rosa Parks was just a nice, beautiful, sweet woman with a sense of uh, determination. As a matter of fact, I met Rosa Parks uh, almost a year before I I met Dr. King and um, I had attended Uh, a program uh, near Nashville uh, Highlander Folk School and she was there and it was a place where blacks and whites could come together the first time sitting down having a meal with someone white Um, and Rosa Parks emerged as one of the uh, leaders uh, of this group Uh, apparently she had gone there for many, many years to, to study the way of nonviolence and social action.
1: So you're there with Dr. King, Dr. Abernathy, both giants already. Did you go back to Troy after that meeting
0: or did you stay? Well, we had a wonderful discussion uh, during the meeting. I told Dr. King I needed his help. I wanted to attend Troy State College, all-white school, now known as Troy University, that I had submitted my application, my high school transcript, but I never heard a word from the college. So Dr. King said, I know your family owns some land. I said, yes, it's 110 acres, and we have a house on the land where we live. He so, said, You know, if you pursue your entrance in going to Troy State, your home could be bombed or burned. Your family could lose the land. Go back and have a discussion with your mother and, and, and father. And, but if you want to go, we will help you. We will sue the state of Alabama, we will sue Troy State and we would get other lawyers like Fred Gray and Thurgood Marshall and others to help. And I went back and had a discussion with my mother
1: and my father. Okay, now what did they say?
0: My mother and my father were so afraid, especially my mother. She thought that I would get hurt, that the house would be bombed or burned, and that we could lose the land. And my mother didn't want to have anything to do with my interest in attending Troy State. So I went off to school in Nashville, Tennessee. An uncle of mine gave me a $100 bill, more money than I ever had, gave me a footlocker. I put everything that I owned in that footlocker, my clothing, my few books, except the chickens that I used to raise as a child and took a Greyhound bus. Nashville, Tennessee, where I studied for four years. But while studying there, I started attending nonviolent workshops, and Martin Luther King Jr. would come there to speak, and I would see him, and I would talk with him, and I got involved in the movement. And he knew I was getting involved, and he encouraged me, and suggested so when I finished college and got my education that I should return to Alabama to work with him and the people in the movement.
1: So here you are, four years, um, and you're doing these nonviolent workshops. It has always astounded me and moved me that people who endured um, terrorism by having their homes bombed, being lynched, being denied their rights as Americans under the Constitution, uh, being murdered, That you and other folks in the movement gravitated and went towards nonviolence as the way to make things right. Where that, to to my mind, that requires an inner strength and conviction. I don't know. I would be able to share. Where did that come from for you? We studied
0: the teaching. Of Gandhi, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Thoreau, and around that time, a little comic book came out. It was called Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story." Dr. King helped edit this little book. It was sixteen pages. It sold for ten cents. It became like our guide, and. We became imbued with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. We had what we call role playing or social drama. You have black and white college students, some high school students that would meet every Tuesday night near Fish University campus in a little Methodist church, and we studied and studied. And then we had what we call "tested ends." where a group of black and white students will go to a little restaurant or go to a little place where they had a lunch counter and just sit to establish the fact that these places would refuse to serve an interracial group. And then we start sitting in on a regular basis after this sit-in started in Greensboro, North Carolina. We'd be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion waiting to be served, and someone would come up and spit on us or put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on us, pull us off the stool and start beating us, stomping us, and we would try to look straight ahead without saying a word. And then we were told over and over again, if we continue to sit in, we would be arrested, and we would be taken to jail. And I will never, never forget it as long as I live. One day, when a group of us went down to sit down, student from Fish University, Tennessee State, Mahara Medical College, American Baptist Seminary, Vanderbilt, Peabody, Mahara Medical School. We'd be sitting there. Then we were ordered to get up. And we would just stay sitting. Then we were placed under arrest. But before being arrested, if I were going to get arrested, I wanted to look good. I wanted to look clean. I wanted to look fresh. I wanted to look sharp. So I went downtown Nashville and bought a new suit. It was a used suit, and I paid five dollars for this suit. And the day I got arrested, I did look clean and fresh and sharp. And I felt so free. I felt so liberated. And I have not
1: looked back since. You felt so free and so liberated being arrested.
0: Yes. Why? Because people have said, we're going to arrest you. We're going to take you to jail. And somehow, in some way, we broke that chain that it's okay to get arrested and go to jail for something that is right and fair
1: and just. And that's what you call good trouble.
0: I call it good trouble. I call it necessary trouble. Mm -hmm. And every so often when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to say, no, no.
1: You know, another time when you, you looked clean and good and fresh, was when um, the, the kickoff to, of the Selma to Montgomery marches, there's this iconic photograph of you in a light trench coat, backpack. Um, the way you tell the story is you knew you were going to get arrested. And so you packed that backpack with a, uh, an orange, uh, some books, toothbrush, toothpaste. And I
0: had also, also an apple.
1: Right, and and an apple. Because
0: you just knew. Well, I thought we would be arrested and we would be going to jail. So I wanted to have something to read. I wanted to have something to eat. Since I was going to be in jail with my friends and colleagues and neighbors, I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. Uh, All these, many years later, I don't know what happened to the backpack, (laughs) to the apple, the orange, or the toothpaste, or the toothbrush. But we... We had to march that day. We had to walk across that bridge. It's the Edmund Pettus Bridge, crossing the Alabama River. We were on our way from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation and to the world that the black people in the black belt of Alabama wanted to register to vote, to participate in the democratic process. People had to pass a so-called literacy test. People were told they could not read or write well enough. People were asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a the jar. There were African-American lawyers and doctors, college professors, teachers, who flunked the so-called literacy tests. We had to do it.
1: And so you marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then what happened?
0: We got on the other side of the bridge. There was a group of state troopers standing, And the major said, the Alabama State Police, this is an unlawful march. It will not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your homes or to your church. And one of the guys walking with me leading the march by the name of Jose William said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. The major said again, Trooper, advance I said, Major, may I have a word? You said, there would be no word. Troopers advance. You saw these guys putting on a gas mask. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses. I was sitting ahead by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went from under me. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. And to this day, I don't know how I made it back across that bridge through the streets of Selma, back to the little church where we had left for them. But I do remember being back at the church. They asked me to say something, and I stood up and said, I don't understand it, That President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama, to protect people who only desire to register to vote. I was hospitalized. 16 other people and a group of nuns took care of us
1: you know when when you tell that story and when you read about the history and the violence that you suffered and that african-americans endured during that time and when i hear you tell when i hear you tell these stories i just can't I, You've seen death, you've seen horror, you've been a victim of violence. Where does it come from, it, it, the strength that you have, to endure that, get past it, and still be someone who... I give To the listener, if you've ever been in the presence of John Lewis or you have seen him on television, you know that there is not one shred of bitterness that comes through, either on the television screen or sitting here in front of me right now. How is that possible?
0: Well, you have the training, but it's more than training. Uh, You would leave so high in some way that you have to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. Dr. King taught us never to hate, for hate is too heavy a burden to bear. He taught us the way of love, the way of peace. And he said in effect that we must have the strength to go on, accept the suffering and and never give up, never give in, and try to keep it going. And create a community at peace with itself. Mm -hmm. You
1: know a couple of times now two years in a row now I've gone on the faith and politics civil rights pilgrimage that you lead and to be on the bus with you and hear you you with the microphone pointing out points of interest telling stories reminiscing why You've been doing this now. That pil- I've only done it two years. You've been doing this pilgrimage for at least 15 years? 20 years. Tw- 20 years. But
0: I've been going back every year since 1965, except for one. You have to go back. You, have, you get young people, and people are not so young to go back, to understand, to learn, to be inspired, that when they see something that is not right or fair or just, They, too, can do something, assess something. You have to go back.
1: And at no point do you ever feel burdened by the history that you have lived, that you embody, um, that is literally within your lifetime, my lifetime, maybe most of the nation's lifetime.
0: Well, it's just so much happened in Alabama in Mississippi, in Georgia, and other parts of the South that people need to know about. And uh, the highlight going back there was fifth anniversary, walking across the bridge with the first African-American president, Barack Obama. I think we both were deeply moved by just walking together across that bridge.
1: See, you're anticipating my, my next question where I was going to go because uh, I'm just going to show you this picture here. And it's the picture of you and President Obama during the 50th um, anniversary. It's the two of you embracing another iconic photograph. What is going through your mind in that picture?
0: I was saying to myself, This is it. If someone had told me and told others when we walked across that bridge, the 600 of us, that one day in our lifetime we'll be walking across that bridge in the presence of the first African-American president. Just being there with President Obama made me cry. And I think he teared up too
1: you know i remember um president obama's speech he didn't talk about donald trump by name didn't mention his name cuz it was like the, the campaign was was going but he alluded he alluded to him and i just wonder because you are on record ever since trump's election um you didn't th- don't think he's a leg- legitimate president um Trump has gone after you on Twitter. Now that we're a year in, year plus into the Trump years, what do you make of him and what he's done to the country in terms of civil rights and the progress that the country made since you marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge that first time on Bloody Sunday?
0: I think the presidency of the so-called leadership of Mr. Trump has set us back, has interrupted the floor of history. But in the final analysis we will make it, The more bridges to cross, but we will make it And it would be the young people, the children, that would help us get there in spite of all that is going on today. It just, I I just believe deeply within, it's just a matter of time, that fate and history would come together, and we would get there. We may be set back for a moment, or for a year or two years, maybe longer, but there's no turning back.
1: I got to ask you about, since you mentioned it'll be the, the young people, the nation is just captivated by what I'm calling the Parkland generation. Those students from Parkland and the students from around the country, high school students who are organizing in ways. Well, let me ask you, have you seen this level of, of energy and excitement by young people since you were just slightly older than they are now?
0: I, I have not seen this degree of excitement and degree of leadership, commitment, and dedication since the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Since the children of Selma, the children of Birmingham, the children of Albany, and Georgia, there were young children back then saying to the nation, let my teacher register to vote. I'm not old enough to register to vote. Those kids got arrested. They went to jail by the hundreds in Birmingham, in Selma, in Albany, Georgia. These young people today have fallen in an unbelievable rich tradition. Uh, I have so much hope. They make me so proud. Uh, I've had an opportunity to to meet with many of these young people. And I had an opportunity to march with them uh, just a few days ago. And uh, they asked me to speak. And uh, I spoke. And one young student that introduced me, he said that I was the youngest speaker on August 28, 1963. And...
1: That was the March on Washington. The March
0: on Washington. And when I spoke just a few days ago, he said I was the oldest speaker. These (laughs) young people get it. They get it. They will be the leaders, not just of America, but the leader of the planet.
1: Why do you think greatness leaps generations like that? Why didn't my generation or... The generation that came, that comes after mine, or millennials, or the generation just before mine, why didn't we see or haven't we seen that kind of energy?
0: Well, I call it something, and I'm not so sure, but I call it it's the spirit of history that reach down and tend to touch and, and sort of bless you and lift you, whether you want to go to the right or to the left. You've been chosen. You've been called. I I think the same thing happened with Dr. King and others. And it happened with the young blacks and whites that went to Mississippi in 1964.
1: When we were uh, on the pilgrimage, one of the young people who helped uh, question you uh, with Dana Bash from CNN asked you, and what do we tell our, I'm paraphrasing, what do we tell our parents who see that we want to get involved but are kind of concerned and, and want us to be respectful? And you said, you said, tell them you've been touched by the spirit of history. You mentioned that just a second ago, but that's such a powerful line, such a, a beautiful line. Do the young people you've talked to, the Parkland kids, do they feel like they've been touched by the spirit of history? Do they feel like they are at the, they are at the vanguard of something big?
0: Well, I'm convinced that these young people feel they've been touched by the spirit of history, and they're letting that spirit use them for good. And they are creating a very, very powerful movement a very powerful force. They would be the leaders, the teachers, the lawyers, the doctors, the politicians, the writers, the
1: scholars. You led a, the last big mass shooting in Florida that shocked the nation was the Pulse nightclub, a mass shooting in Orlando in June of 2016. And you led a sit-in on the floor of the House of Representatives. And you said, we have been too quiet for too long. There comes a time when you have to say something. You have to make a little noise. You have to move your feet. This is the time. And then two years went by, nothing happened. And now we have the Parkland kids and they're moving their feet, they're making a lot of noise. This is their time. Do you think that they will be successful where other gun control advocates were not?
0: I am convinced that these efforts on the part of these young people and others will be successful. The Congress must act, and we will act. If we fail to act, the voters will not be kind to us and they shouldn't be kind to us. There's a force, there's a power. As Dr. King said during the Birmingham movement, there's a fire burning that water cannot put out.
1: You've been consistent in terms of your views about equality, justice. When the so-called Defense of Marriage Act was being debated on the uh, debated in Congress in the early 1990s, you went to the floor and delivered this impassioned speech about how the United States should not be in the business of basically legalizing discrimination telling people who they can and cannot love that was not a popular position to take as a politician but, um, but it, it,
0: it was the right position to take you don't go can I go around discriminating against people I saw it in the movement I saw individuals being discriminated against people who believe in bringing people together it was not the right thing to do and I made up my mind that I would never, ever be quiet, that I would speak up and speak out. And that's why I took to the floor, the House of Representatives, and spoke up. And I was so pleased and so glad when the Supreme Court came down with the dissents, with that unbelievable. I went out with hundreds and thousands of others in front of the Supreme Court and celebrated because we're one people and it doesn't matter whether we're straight or gay. It doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino or Asian American or Native American. The late A. Philip Randolph, who was the leader of the March on Washington, used to say over and over again, maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this great land in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Dr. King put it another way. We must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, if not, we will perish as food. There's not any room in our society to discriminate against people because of sexual orientation.
1: That speech, your sit-in on the floor of the house after the, the Pulse nightclub shooting, those are the actions that helped earn you the the nickname Conscience of the Congress. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's, that's a well, pretty uh, heavy. Uh, no, I don't think in the conscience
0: of the Congress, but you know, there come a time when you cannot be quiet and you have to speak up and speak out. i tell you one thing that hurt me a great deal when we failed to bring forth a comprehensive immigration reform bill and set free Hundreds and thousands and millions of people that are living in our country in fear. The dreamers, these children that came here when they were one and two and three and four years old, this is the only country they know. And these, many of these young people live in fear. And That's not right. That's not fair. And history will not be kind to us.
1: What would you tell? What would you tell those dreamers right now who are living in fear,
0: well, I day spent, to day? I spend a lot of time with the dreamers in, in, in Georgia and around the country. I tell them to hold on, hold on, be hopeful, be optimistic, continue to speak up and speak out. Help us on the way. We'll get there. We take the Congress back. We'll fix it.
1: Where are you going to be on April 4th, 2018?
0: On April 4th, I'm going to visit Indianapolis, going back to the spot we're 50 years ago, and then I'm going to travel to Memphis.
1: Will that be your first time?
0: This will be my very, very first Indianapolis. time going back to Indianapolis. I have not gone back to that spot since. Um, it's just been too hard, too difficult. I
1: was about right. to ask you, uh, you you've said it with the exception of one year, you have gone back to Selma since 65. But you have not gone back to Indianapolis, to that spot, in 50 years
0: no i have not gone back people have been trying to get me to come back but but i'm going uh, i'm going there i have not been back to the spot uh where robert kennedy was killed uh, the old building the ambassador hotel in los angeles is is gone but i have not been back there there's, there's some I, you know, it was sort of the end or something because when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and when Dr. King was assassinated, I think something died in all of us. I got to know these two young men. They were our future. Unbelievable. They gave us hope. If they had to maybe our country would be much better. Maybe the world would be much better.
1: What gives you hope or who gives you hope now? The young people,
0: the young people and the women of America give me hope. They give me unbelievable hope. If we had uh, more young people and and more women out there pulling us all together, we'd be moving much closer to the beloved community, much closer to redeeming the soul of America.
1: Congressman John Lewis of 5th Congressional District of Georgia, Dean of the Georgia Congressional Delegation, Presidential Medal of Freedom Awardee in 2011. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. What an honor.
0: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the
0: American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com podcasts.
1: The Washington, Washington, Washington
0: Post.